Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Where are you guys at on the uh, Matthew Kachuk skate off the ice, Sally? 100% love it. Uh, it's the coldest way to finish off a game. I think it's the funniest thing in the world. I do the same thing in beer league when the game's over. <laughs> I literally just run out of there. Yeah, but you don't score. You just no. s- yeah. sprint off the ice. Yeah, I grab the key and sprint. There's about five minutes left in the third when he does it. <laughs> That's what he does with the podcast. That's what he does at work. Not what he does on an 18, At NASA. Though. At NASA, that's yeah, right. Yeah. At 18, he takes an extra extra shot off the tee just to... To work on the game a little bit. That's right. The fact that Kachuk was able to do that twice in a row, like that is, that that's going down in a career highlight reel, and how much must that drive you insane if you're the Hurricanes? In your own arena, he does that. I mean, depending on how tired the Hurricanes players were, they might have been a little relieved. Some Save, of the fans saves a bit of time. <laughs> they were still getting some of the fans out this after at the start of game two who were still asleep. <laughs> they found some who rolled under the seats. Yeah, they just searched the pockets. Oh, they have tickets for both games. Just leave them. <laughs> Neither of you guys stayed up for that, right? Oh, I was. God, I was no. up. What the hell is wrong with you? Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks. Here to talk all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, international hockey, and just generally getting Evans. Life together. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. Are you sure? No. <laughs> He's trying to be Michael Block. I wish. Yeah. I got no one's having a greater time in their life right now than that guy. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're gonna talk to you about some updates from the world championships. Not all of them good, because uh, Joe Valeno did something pretty bad and out of character. So we'll talk about uh the Joe Valeno incident with Nino Niederreiter. Uh, we have a pretty big uh, prospect profile today, one that I'm personally uh, really looking forward to in Oliver Moore. We'll talk about the progress in the uh, NHL Stanley Cup playoffs as the conference finals roll on. Two different series are 2 nothing in, in pretty surprising ways. And the slow but fantastic implosion of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Shocking even for them, I was not expecting this. And so we'll we'll talk about, you know, the ripple effects it's going to have around the league, and then whatever else we get into before overtime. Before all that, uh, if you want to support the Winged Wheel podcast, obviously we run all off-season. We're still recording two episodes a week. If you're wondering how that happens, it's through the incredible support of our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel podcast. If you want to join the Dub Dub Club, the benefits you get, you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. Uh, we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings home game last season, the vast majority going to our patrons. Uh, you get access to our bonus episodes, which record right after these main episodes, which are a lot of fun. The Thoughts with Evan segment is a uh, a fan favorite. And uh, you get access to our Winged Wheel podcast uh, official Discord, which is a great community. It helps support the show, uh, all of our continued growth. Uh, any of you know our perceived successes because of our patrons, uh, our expanded content universe with the uh, Expected by Whom, a new show that we launched that's hosted by Prashant Iyer and Sean Shapiro. Our support of the Jamie Daniels Foundation uh, and everything else, that is all supported by our Patreon supporters. So patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast if you uh, want to contribute. Joe Valeno. What the hell was that? Completely out of character, right? Like that was shocking to see. Yep, not what I was expecting uh, from his world championship, uh, which is now pretty much over. And, uh, 
Yeah, I it's it's one of those situations it's hard to form a thought on because it is so bad and so out of absolutely nowhere. Because one, I don't think he would do that in an NHL game where the NHL is way more intense than the World Championship. The World Championship is for half of these guys like, uh, yeah, this is our vacation to Finland for the year. <laughs> Um, we hope we can play hungover like type of tournament for at least the North American guys. I know the Europeans take it a lot, uh, more serious. So, you know, it, not all teams are created equal in this. I think Joe Valeno was like their first or second line center, whatever, whatever you want to make of that for team Canada. But yeah, in a lower intensity tournament, I don't know that that was so dumb. So for context, there was a scrum along the boards between uh, Canada and Switzerland. Uh, Valena was on the outside of it. Nita Ryder was pinned up by another Canadian player, I believe. And uh, his ankle, his leg was kind of stuck out, uh, braced along the ice, but at a wide angle. Joe Valeno took his right foot, lifted it, and stomped downwards, blade first uh, on Nita Ryder's high ankle slash lower leg area. Uh, Nita Ryder was okay, escaped without, you know, breaking his ankle or thank goodness the uh, the skate didn't cut through or anything. And then there was a scrum in front after where Niederreiter obviously went after him. They changed exchanged some shots. And to put it plainly, Valeno dove and drew the penalty. Uh, so the refs completely whiffed on this one. The IHF afterwards didn't, though, and they suspended Joe Valeno for five games, which obviously is a huge suspension. International Hi- uh, Ice Hockey Federation is traditionally a lot more stern. So I'm almost wondering if Valeno didn't get away with uh, something bigger here. I, I could have seen them going a little bit more heavy, but still five games, I think it's a significant warranted suspension. But yeah, I saw that and I was like, Phew. that's not the Joe Valeno that we know. Yeah, super, yeah, like you guys said, like super out of character, really off of a nothing play. It wasn't like Niederreiter yeah. was really grinding his gears in the corner and the wires crossed. Well, the wires obviously did cross, but yeah, just... Really came out of nowhere and from a person you would not expect those things to happen. So, I don't know. I don't expect uh, Joe Valeno to become the 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 head chef when he heads back to Detroit. So, um, I don't know. I think he'll learn from this for sure. There were, talking about that, I, I know you're kidding, Evan, but there were a lot of people wondering if this is going to have any implications at a, an NHL level. I, Joe, Matt Cook, Valeno. <laughs> like, I don't think... I think the Red Wings at worst will have a uh, will talk to him to say, "Hey, I'm I'm sure you know, and based on the response here, like, don't do that, but uh, just don't ever do that again." But they're not going to trade him because of this. He's not going to get like dinged on his next contract because of this. Like, this is very obviously like a one off. If it starts to turn into a pattern, then sure. But no, he's not going to get kicked off the Red Wings for something that happened in the world championships. I'm not saying it's a good thing or that it's, it's nothing and it doesn't count because it happened overseas. Like he could have seriously hurt Niederreiter and he's lucky that he didn't, but no, the the Red Wing, he's not going to not be a Red Wing because of this. Possibly, but his trade value has now, now gone up because of how old hockey men love truculence and a-holes on the ice. You know, 
Old hockey men love a good prick on the ice. So uh, Joe Valeno's trade value just skyrocketed. <laughs> this is the budget version of Matthew Kachuk that we've been looking for? <laughs> Everyone now. You know what? The monkey paw curled when I said, please stop comparing everyone to the next Braden Point because it's now morphed into everyone is now the next Matthew Kachuk. Yeah. That's a lot. I brought that on to us. And I love how you're saying old hockey men love this. I think it was last episode where you were like, the Red Wings need more pricks. <laughs> it literally was oh, last there you episode. Go. We are approaching Brad's birthday, so yeah, you are becoming an older hockey man. So I need to I need to say this out loud. Joe, thank you for listening. <laughs> this isn't what I meant. Details matter, Brad. Be a little bit more specific. Write your this, instructions so your kids can understand them. This is my fault. Yeah. I understand. That's why I'm clarifying, Joe, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is a father of kids who are starting to be able to read and understand instructions <laughs> and who has been hurt before. That's Joe Valeno uh, in the World Championships. Not a great one. Uh, not much else to be said about it. I don't know if you guys have uh, or, or genuinely think that anything else could come from it at an NHL level, but it's kind of a, a settled matter. Suspended for five games at the international level. Doesn't affect him uh, at the NHL level. I'm sure the team will hope that we never see this from him again, and I think that's where all Red Wings fans are too. I You can't blame any of the backlash um, for people who are upset about it, and right now it's just like, you hope it's a one-off, and you're just happy Niederreiter didn't get hurt. That's it. Yeah. Wires got crossed. Yep. Okay, uh, let's jump right into the prospect profile that uh, we've been waiting to talk about for uh, a long time because I think he's he's a guy who's going to be really interesting for Detroit to potentially pick at pick nine, or depending on what you think uh, about the draft, some folks think he could be available at 17 or, or in between there. But uh, Oliver Moore, center out of the USNTDP, uh, touted as the best skating player in this draft. Uh, Brad, your comparison to him has been, you know, this is the Larkin uh, archetype or, or the second Larkin that we've been talking about for a while. Who is Oliver Moore? What kind of prospect is he relative to his peers? And is this a potential, uh, you know, go-to pick in your mind for Detroit at pick nine? I think he's going to be one of the strongest candidates. Uh, and I think that's a universally true statement, regardless of what anyone feels about him, because... This player probably fits the Iserman Red Wings archetype more than any other player in this draft. High motor, high speed, ultra competitive, you know, very smart hockey player. Uh, you know, all the things the Red Wings traditionally have looked for since Iserman has taken over. And this has probably been, he is probably the closest pre-draft Dylan Larkin comparable since Dylan Larkin was drafted. You know, we've used Larkin as kind of a rough, you know, idea for what a player might be in the past, but no, Oliver Moore fits the Larkin description almost to a T. Most competitive guy on the ice when he's out there. Generally the fastest guy on the ice when he's out there. Generally the smartest guy on the ice when he's out there. The hands aren't bad, but they're nothing special. The shot's not bad, but it's nothing elite. Um, so if you, if you want to see what Oliver Moore's best case scenario is, we, we've been watching it. Yeah. And I got to repeat that's best case scenario. I'm not sitting here and saying Oliver Moore is going to be Dylan Larkin. Otherwise he's not getting out of the top five. That's just how this works. Cause there is margin for error. The big divide amongst the scouting world on Oliver Moore is what is his ultimate offensive upside. Because most people like his offense. He's not devoid of offense. He, 
uh, had to anchor the USNTDP's second line because obviously he was playing behind. He was the number two center behind Will Smith this year. Um, a very similar situation to what Dylan Larkin was in with the USNTDP when he was behind Jack Eichel. So again, all the comparisons are lining up perfectly. And even at that point, he still put up big numbers. He was the driver of his line. He was able to do just about everything he needed to do, despite not having Gabe Perot and Ryan Leonard on his wing uh, for most of the season. So if you believe his upside is going to be roughly that of Dylan Larkin, he is a no-brainer pick at number nine. You better sprint to the stage and take him. But not everybody agrees that is possible. Not everybody agrees that it's in his repertoire. I am personally a big believer in Oliver Moore. He is probably my favorite, if not at worst, top two or three guys that I think will be there at number nine for the Red Wings to pick. Um, Because, you know, obviously he fits what the Red Wings are trying to build. And I, I think the offense is there. So, you know, just depends on what, uh, what the Red Wings think that ceiling is. I'm glad you called out the the offensive ceiling question because that is the biggest question mark for me. But looking at him purely as a player, 100%. The skating is phenomenal. The effort is phenomenal. And you know that we don't like to blindly on the show just draw comparisons arbitrarily to players just for a simple comparison. But I do see it with Larkin. Like Larkin, especially at draft time, there is no standout individual like stick handling or, or ability to snipe it or whatever that made him uh yeah this guy could be a, a point per game player it's more about being in the right places putting the puck in the right places and just grinding and skating your ass off and doing it really well and yeah that that comparison is there for Oliver Moore I'm right there with you one of my favorite players for Detroit at nine I have that same question though of is he just the best of the rest that you can you can take and you're not really going to do much better than a guy whose most likely outcome is middle six center? Or does it make more sense to take a swing, a bigger swing on someone else? Like let's say uh, uh, Zach Benson follows or Dalibor Dvorsky is there or whatever it is. Are their offensive upsides and ability to put out uh, offense a little bit more substantial? So the question for more is for two things for Detroit in my mind. Like we know all his bona fides. Brad just laid it out perfectly. If you're the Red Wings, you you look at him and you you say, do you think he is going to be an everyday center? And two, do you think his offensive production is higher than what was showed because he was uh, buried behind a very like record breaking for productive first line with the USNTDP and his development can continue kind of the way Dylan Larkins did based on his fundamentals. You can teach him to produce the way Dylan Larkin has. And yeah, he's not going to be on highlight reels the way Connor Bedard is going to be, but he's still going to be able to put up, you know, 65 plus points for you as a second line center. So I think those things are possible. I am just wary of how small is that window? Like how, how limited is that, uh, that portion of his uh, projected outcomes? I think it's actually a, a benefit for him to not be playing on the top line of the USNTDP because for me, it's a realization that he doesn't need elite wingers to produce. He still was over a point per game and had over 30 goals this year. So I think for me, it, it, it makes the fogginess around him a little bit more clear. Um, so, you know, if, if you're looking for a Dylan Larkin type player, 
And the Red Wings have terrible foot speed, as we all know. Yeah. Like, I think he fills a hole that the team desperately has. And I, he's likely to play center at the NHL level. So, um, yeah, his hands aren't great. He's moving very fast to uh, have exceptionally good hands. You know, those are things you can work on, and he's got high compete, so that makes me believe in a guy can, you know, hone his game. I don't know if he's NHL ready soon. Like, yeah, depend, and that, you know, depends on what the team thinks their timeline might be. Um, but I, you know, if, if that's the guy they take at nine, I, I would be incredibly thrilled with that. It would also allow you to take a, a bigger risk. Like, let's say you went all over more. Not that you have to... Like these guys are going to be tied to each other for the rest of their careers. But if you went all over more, and then with either pick seventeen or if you traded up from it, Matthew Wood is a lot more. It's a lot easier to to stomach that risk if you have a guy who you know maybe doesn't have as high of a ceiling, but could be more of an everyday NHLer with a little bit more certainty, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you know the term safe draft pick gets misconstrued a lot in terms of uh, low ceiling but high floor. So I don't want people to think that's what I'm saying here. Oliver Moore is one of the safer picks in the first round because his floor is very, very high with his skating, compete, and hockey sense. To me, at worst, he's the Red Wings' third line center. So if so, you're you pick him at nine, you're getting a player out of the first round of this draft. So yeah, that does allow you to take a bigger swing because it, the one thing that absolutely cannot happen under any circumstance for the Red Wings in this draft is they whiff on both. If this was just a, this was a single pick here, they couldn't whiff on it. So the fact they have two first round picks, if they can come out of this with one top six forward, they are doing amazingly well. And if Oliver Moore is a third line center, that might be disappointing relative to the ninth overall pick. But then you take a gamble on a Callum Ritchie, a Matthew Wood, a Edward Shalah. All of a sudden, yeah, you get a top six forward with the second pick and you still get a usable player in the first one you're still ecstatic with how that draft turned out right you know we always for example you, you know not dunk but like we're always upset with how this Dina pick turned out yeah the 2018 draft is still a very successful draft the Red Wings first three picks all turned into NHL players and the third guy they picked is probably the one guy who's going to spend the most time in the top six in Jonathan Peregrine because he was the type of guy that was no sure bet in his draft and you know, they t- they rolled the dice on him and they got a player out of it. So, yeah, this, this will be, to a lesser extreme, the same kind of circumstance. So what do you think about Oliver Moore compared to those guys that I mentioned, Dalibor Dvorsky, Zach Benson, Ryan Leonard? Like, if they're on the board, do, do any of those guys say no, uh, make you say no automatically? I, I'm sorry, I really like Oliver Moore, but I'm going for, you know, Dvorsky's offensive upside or I'm going for Le- uh, Ryan Leonard's, you know, Bertuzzi 2.0 uh, archetype or whatever it is. Every one of them should give you pause. And th- all four of them are very different players. So, you know, it's a boring answer, but the true answer here is what's your flavor, right? Because Zach Benson's that small, shifty winger. You, uh, you know, um, Leonard's the, the high-end shot with the grit. Dvorsky's, you know, more of your... He is a 200-foot player, but your offensive guy and Oliver Moore is your 200-foot player. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I could be talked into any one of them pretty comfortably. And obviously, you know, it's not good the Red Wings didn't win the draft lottery, but we've said it before. It's a good year to at least uh, be in the top 10 because 
there's almost no, it's a certainty one of those guys is going to be there when the Red Wings are picking. Like looking at the guys in that range, Oliver Moore, like the the positionality is doing it for me. I agree with you, Evan. I think he has what it takes to be an everyday NHL center. He might not start out that way. He might have to start on the wing. We're probably going to see if all goes well a, a Dylan Larkin development path, like you mentioned, Brad. But the for the Detroit to have Larkin potentially Casper uh, in the top six center role, provided that pans out, and then Oliver Moore behind him, is that going to you know light up you know best center depth ranking lists across the NHL? No, but it, it's something that you could potentially really work with, and it's young. And it's uh, hard to play against, and it's fast. It'll certainly breed competition for that second line center position too. So you, you know, injecting a lot of high end centers from your draft may actually, you know, secure the development of those types of players. I agree, and there's there's no shortage of potential players who at pick seventeen, or even if you trade up from it, could be like home run swings. I mentioned Matthew Wood. Uh, I mentioned Ryan Leonard, Shala, depending on what you think about him, Braden Yeager. Not all these guys are going to be available all the way down there. Gabe Perot, uh, they're not all going to be available down there, but if you secure that center with what should be, hopefully, and <laughs> don't clip this because it's going to be played in a year and I'll look like a dummy. On the Jumbotron at yeah. the LCA. Oh, God. <laughs> the Red Wings social team has burned us before and they'll do it again. <laughs> we love them for it. But this should be Detroit's highest draft pick, hopefully in a long time. If you can use that pick to nail down a center, I, I think Oliver Moore is a great kind of last hurrah with that that premium pick. All of this to say, I am still a big proponent of trading and working with what you got because Steve Eisenman has a ton of high-end picks, 9, 17, and three picks in the second round. And as Evan says all the time, you can't draft all those players. There's no room for all those players. We are already seeing... The, the pipeline's starting to get crammed up. You're starting to have to make these decisions to move them out. Not to say it's bad to have high-end prospects. Three second-round picks would be amazing if that's the route that they go, but you're eventually going to need to make decisions and move those assets around. So, yeah, Oliver Moore for me, one of my favorite prospects in the draft, especially with where Detroit's drafting. I'm not saying it would be wrong to not take him if they took Perot or Dvorsky or whoever over him, but I would be thrilled if they walked away with him. I've seen rankings where he's like outside the top 15 or mocks where he's outside the top 15. Like, ex- I just can't there. I just can't see a situation where he's sitting there at 17 for Detroit. No. I just, I just can't. Cause it's not going to happen because he's a 200 foot center with speed. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> and everybody knows you need speed in the NHL these days. And everyone's always looking for centermen. I, I don't think that those mocks, are necessarily wrong in that it's impossible that he is like the 17th best player out of the draft class. Like I don't, yeah, I don't disagree on that front. Poop their pants and pick a defenseman because they think they need one more than anything else. Totally, but yeah, I agree. If if this was a winger or you know a different position, then maybe I could see him sliding. But I agree, I have a hard time believing that a, a two way 200 foot center with speed is going to fall that far. I mean, it'd be great if he did. I'd be yeah. over. Imagine you you took Leonard Moore. I'll just, yeah, I'll put it this way. If the Red Wings take Dvorsky or Leonard or whoever at number nine and Oliver Moore still sitting there at 13 or 14, I, if I'm Steve Eisen, I'm not hanging up the phone until someone lets Agree. me trade up. Agree. And yeah, there will that's be. That's what a- I was thinking. Like, I'd, I'd rather keep nine and then leverage the second round picks with 17 to move up and secure someone like him if he is somehow <laughs> slipping down the board. Yeah. 
That's like a dream. Somebody's got to slip, right? There's like 13 guys, 14 guys who can go in the top 10. Somebody's got to slip. Oh, yeah. It's not a unique phenomenon. Every year that happens. Someone slips. There's going to be David Reinbacher's going in the top five or something, something outrageous. Yeah. It happens every year. And it has been Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> they took most cider. <laughs> it worked out, but they were the wild card of that draft. Yeah. Yeah. We've learned a we, we always talk about how we've grown in our, our prospect profiling and things through this show, and we've gotten a lot better at it. And it's not just analysis of the players, but it's also the hard lessons of do not get married to a prospect or a plan because what you think and what the public consensus is goes yeah, so far out think. the window. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, if it's not these three players, the draft's a bust. Yeah. Yeah, we've got burned. <laughs> yeah. I get burned on that every year. Like, <laughs> I'm like, if it's not one of these three guys, I'm just going to bitch and moan on the internet. We, we probably should have more conversations along the, along the lines of, do you know what I really like at ninth overall? Clayton Keller. Do you know what I really like at 17th <laughs> overall? Nick Schmaltz. Like, can, you, <laughs> can you imagine? And, and I, I want to say this. This is perfectly possible. Can you imagine Eisenman says, None of these guys are inspiring. I have the option to bring in, you know, Keller and Connor using these two first-round picks and whatever else. We could not, like, the Red Wings don't draft in the first round, and we're just sitting here on the draft live stream like, oh, what do we do with our hands? Like, well, have a great night, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the NHL draft, and we just watched 10 hours of Clayton Keller footage that we are going to break down for you. We will occasionally update picks. We are going to have that Clayton Keller conversation in the future. I know. I well, and Nick Schmaltz. It's gonna be a one-stop shop. That's right. We just constantly talk about Arizona and Toronto in this podcast. Oh, Two big say the west of us or east of us. Yeah, uh, there's a a buffet line lining up too. Yeah, out in Toronto. But Toronto, you know what? You know, okay, this sounds so backwards to say when we get to it. The trade options on Arizona are actually way better for Detroit. I would agree. Because everybody in Toronto of interest is they do not have term left on their contract and Detroit is not in the position to be trading for one or two year rentals, right? Yeah. Whereas Cl- Keller's got a bunch of years left. I think Schmaltz has three years left or something like that. So yeah. those are actually more intriguing options to me, despite being not as good players. And we'll talk about them. Trade options are going to be a thing. Uh, for now, that is Oliver Moore's prospect profile. Obviously a guy that we're going to be talking about as we approach the draft, which is quickly coming. So Stay tuned as we get into some more of the bigger name profiles, uh, bigger mock drafts, uh, and the schedule leading up to the 2023 NHL draft. For now, let's jump over to the Stanley Cup playoffs, and let's talk about what we were talking about before, which uh, Kachuk closing it out in overtime twice. Thank goodness this time uh, in the second game, he only took one overtime to do it. The first game nearly made it to five overtimes, uh, which was nice for them to stay up while I was editing the podcast. I appreciate that, but... 2-0 Florida leaving Carolina, and they have double home ice advantage going back to Florida. (laughs) What what is going on? I love it so much. These playoffs have thrown everyone's expectations right at the window. Okay. All right. Stats minor. Oh, God. (laughs) I I need... Dust the old thinking cap off. Yeah. I need to know the odds on this happening in professional sports. The Florida Panthers come into the Eastern Conference playoffs as an eight seed. They have a 2-0 series lead in the conference finals. The Miami Heat go into the NBA playoffs as an 8 seed. They have a 3-0 series lead in the conference finals. How They're basically in the same area. They're basically the, you know, Sunrise, Miami, Florida. We'll call it the same city for simplicity's sake of this conversation. Two 8 seeds from the same area. 
two nothing and three nothing leads in the conference finals. I'd say there's something in the water, but I think we already know that about Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my best answer here is 50-50. It either happens or it doesn't. Like yeah. that is it. Good on the fans in Florida. They're getting a treat right now. Uh, yeah, because Florida fans have had a real tough time uh, winning championships over the past decade. It's been hard for them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because in the NHL you had the LA Kings coming in as the eight seed, and then that was the fuel for every GM across the league to say, "Hey, anything can happen." And then enough time got removed from that, and then St. Louis took up the mantle. They got in as a as a late seed uh, after a terrible start to the first half of the season. They won the the cup and anything can happen. And now Florida comes in the the mess of like mouth breathing, drooling idiot NHL teams who are all trying to lose their way out of those two wildcard spots. Florida comes in and, and takes advantage of Pittsburgh just completely blowing it and everyone else sucking. Now they are two nothing up on the first seed or, or the one seed Carolina Hurricanes as the second wildcard team. I, this doesn't happen all the time, but it, there, it seems to happen recurring at, at a periodic rate. Okay, I, I have to bring this up because this is such a misnomer. And teams, this talking point ruins franchises. And I mean that almost literally because this is when you see like 8 and 9 and 10 seeds going out and being buyers at the deadline. The Kings were the best team in the NHL post-Christmas that year. They just They were supposed to be very, very good all year and just had a slow start. And then once they hit their stride, they were just dummying people all the way up to the playoffs. They just had a bad start. St. Louis Blues, same thing. Florida didn't quite have that like Christmas time switch that those two teams did, but these are the reigning president's trophy champions. They were supposed to be a lot better than their regular season was. So us as Red Wings fans, if we're sitting in the eight seed next year, guys, it's not going to happen this way. I just need you to know that. But... Uh, unless we get a Ryan Leonard who's <laughs> a Brady Matthew Kachuk light. Unless you believe Billy Huso can go full Sergei Bobrovsky for four straight playoff rounds. You want to know my hot take? And I've said this before. Any goalie in the NHL can do what Sergei Bobrovsky is doing. There's no rhyme or reason. Oh, it's just what the hockey gods dictate. Oh, what? Next you're going to tell me Aiden Hill's up 2 nothing in a play- conference saying, final? dude. Like, they... Sure, Ryan. I'll, if, if I'll anything, believe it when I see it. If anything, it's made the goalie contracts even more confusing. Because, yes. oh, you got the 10 million guy and you got the guy who's on waivers who's also playing incredible. It's like, I don't know, give, give him 4 million bucks these days. I don't know anymore. Pay who you want, <laughs> however much you want. It doesn't matter. It's not up to you. The hockey gods dictate it. Goalies are beyond voodoo. It's just the way of life. It and I'm I'm giving Evan a little bit of service here. It's like golf. Just the most random guy is going to come in and have the best weekend of his life. And all of a sudden you have, you know, a, a PGA club pro coming in at 15th in, in a, uh, a major at the PGA championship. Like it is just any guy can come in and it's just about getting hot at the right time. Yeah, I'm being reductive here. I mean, any- Florida is hot at the right time and they believe in themselves. Uh, yeah, 100%. And the further we get into spring, it's only getting hotter. Okay. Especially in Florida. (laughs) Take care, folks. That's all. (laughs) And you know what? I was thinking about this as I was driving today. Sergey Bobrovsky's contract has been rough. Like, they have not been getting what they want from a guy who they're paying $10 million. That's a $70 million deal. It's it's hampered them. They've tried to get out of the contract. They win the cup this year. Who cares? Whole thing's worth it. Who cares? One cup, it's all worth it. It might already be at this point. Like, he is playing supernova. Yeah. 
like what I, my rant earlier was reductive. Like he has the talent and we've seen Vesna Bob before. We've seen Bobrovsky do this before. I always believe that when a goalie of that talent falls off well before, you know, the age curve should like, and I think goalies last a lot longer than players in the NHL. Like unless he's 40, I think any goalie can, can make a resurgence. We saw Carey Price do it before his body literally fell apart. But yeah, I, this whole contract for Bobrovsky will be worth it if they, if they do the thing, if they make the cup finals and, and potentially win the cup and, oh man, is he doing it? And Anderson's been stellar. As, yeah. Has Carolina even been bad? Like the, the other night they were up 16 to one in shots at one point. Like, I don't feel like Carolina is playing bad. It's just Florida's counter punching and they, they generate off turnovers. Well, Carolina's uh, collected two of a possible four points. That's right. That's right. The loser points. <laughs> I'm just checking the uh, the money puck deserved to win meter First game, Carolina heavily, like 70, 72 plus percent. And the second game, Carolina even more heavily, nearly 80 percent. And that doesn't mean anything. Literally, the, the Florida Panthers will never look at those stats no. ever. That's what I love about the playoffs is it legitimately does not matter. It's whatever team, you know, scores that yeah. overtime goal. And, you know, Anderson, like Florida had so many quality chances in overtime, the, the one that went f- almost four full overtimes before Kachuk ended it. And Anderson was standing on his head. I was like, this is the best of the best of playoff hockey. Like Bobrovsky and Anderson both were great, but especially Anderson. And then I thought that, you know, Carolina was primed to come back at that one bounce and do it because they were the better team over the course of the game. And it doesn't matter because Kachuk closed it and yeah. that's what matters in the playoffs. It does, You know, Corsi or, or you know, Shots against or whoever controlled uh, pace of player or time on ice or time on attack, I should say. Doesn't matter. The, no, you have to win those 16 games, and that's the beauty of the NHL playoffs. I also want to say I love extremely long overtime games. You're sick. I, dude, <laughs> feed it into my veins. I was hoping for the fifth overtime, and I was sleep deprived. I, I can barely get to the third period, if the game, <laughs> especially if the game starts at eight. There's no hope. Eight, not even 10.30, 8 Oh, you know me. I've already got my pajamas on at that puck drop. Uh, I love it. And uh, that's the, like, I think they've changed the playoff structure a little bit. I don't like the bracketing. I don't like the lack of reseeding, but never, ever, ever change the infinite overtimes. It is just the purest of the pure of playoff hockey. I would like to see them go to minor hockey tournament overtime rules. Five on five, four on four, three on three, two on two, (laughs) one on one. Do that, do that in the regular season because that'd be funny. But no, Carolina's not been bad. Florida's just found a way to get it done. Credit to Kachuk. You love to hate him. I was with a, a group of guys over the weekend, and they were all saying they can't stand Kachuk. I'm like, yeah, no one likes playing against this guy. Every, but team, would, every team would line up to have him. They're trying to. Every team's trying to recreate him in a lab. Yeah. And then, you know, Bobrovsky is, I know it's a meme, but like back on the back on the force. Like he, I just love seeing Bob do this. Anyways. Two nothing Florida. If they, imagine, I don't think they will, but imagine they pull off the sweep. It'll be really interesting to see how Carolina responds next game because, yeah, they've been dominating, but when you dominate and lose, that can be deflating to a locker room. So, how they come out in Game Three is going to be very critical to how this series may go. Hundred percent, and they have to come out hot. And I could, they got Rod the Bod there as their coach. He'll just say some crazy speech. People will be running through walls. Like, yeah, I, I don't think they, they won't come out. Fired up. Might not even be a crazy speech. He might just threaten them with physical violence. He's just standing there with the shirt off doing dumbbells before the pregame and then walks out. (laughs) Curling in a squat rack. Yeah. Well, over in the West, uh, equally kind of surprising, Vegas is up 2-0 on Dallas. Again, two overtime games, uh, both East and Western Conference. Both uh, the first two games were decided in overtime. Vegas 
uh, up to nothing as they won four, three. And then I think it was three, two, uh, not as lopsided, I think in terms of play or, or, or in terms of, uh, like the surprising results, I think Vegas was better the first game. I think Dallas Reese came back a lot more strong in the second game, but that's another series. I'm surprised about that. It's uh that's two, nothing walking away. I mean, two overtime games, so I can't say super surprised. I think, did I pick Vegas to win the series? You can lie and say you did. I did. So I absolutely <laughs> saw this coming. Once once again, I am correct in my analysis as Dallas now, is now surely going to win the next four. No, I mean, these are two very similar, very evenly matched teams. So the fact we had two coin flip games, you know, makes perfect sense. The only thing that doesn't make sense is it's Aiden Hill against Jake Ottinger. That's you, what I mean. In theory, you'd think that is a heavy mismatch, but apparently it means nothing. Aiden Hill has been playing decidedly better, like by a lot. <laughs> Aiden Hill is third in goals against average and fourth in save percentage. Tell me series. again why we should overpay in trade and dollars for Connor Hellebuck. That's, you know, like. And that's not a shot on Connor Hellebuck. Connor Hellebuck's great, but good God, no. It's a losing formula to try to find an Aiden Hill every year rather than a Jake Ottinger every year. Because Jake Ottinger, on average, will be better, even come playoff time. But this just goes to show the hilarity of what goalies do. And something I've said a lot about the playoffs is your team goes as your goalie goes. If you are a fantastic team, but you have no goaltending, see Toronto Maple Leafs, the floor is going to fall out from beneath you in the playoffs where every inch, every shot, every hit is battled for with 100% more intensity than you saw for the 82 games in the regular season. If your goalie's not there to back you and they let in one soft goal, one soft goal could decide an entire playoffs. Dan Cluche will tell you that. Like, you need a solid goalie. And sometimes, apparently, that's Aiden Hill, who at one point in his career was seen as, like, a very below-average goalie. His resurgence is... Was that was that point, like, six weeks ago? No, no, I think, <laughs> I think it goes back early, earlier than that. His time was San Jose, but I think that was more a San Jose thing than anything else. But, yeah... Again, shocking. And and Vegas, credit to them, they've been fantastic. We talked about it before, but Eichel is probably now one of the odds-on favorites to to win the Conn Smythe. So talk about a coming out party for him and in his first NHL playoffs, like he is proving a lot of people wrong. Man, that, they should he should have been first overall in his draft, I think. <laughs> Proven playoff producer. Oh, really drags man. his teams into the fight. If he if he ends up winning a cup before Connor McDavid does, that that's it. McDa- okay. McDavid requests a trade before Eichel gets that trophy over his head. That's it. Jack- no chance. Get me out of here. He's going to Seattle. Jack Eichel requesting a trade. Domino effect. Butterfly effect. Connor McDavid requests a trade. Just the way the, the NHL always works. And to complete the cycle, he gets traded to the Buffalo Sabres. No, stop that, Brad. We, <laughs> we don't need him in the East. Uh, anything, what, what do you guys expect of these two series? Both of them two nothing. Do you expect any com- completed sweeps or general More sweeps? More same. Yeah? Which, really, this is everything. It could be a- everything and anything. I predict four more overtimes, every series ends in a sweep. Oh, that, that's, that's my hyper-specific prediction. We got, we get two more Florida and Vegas overtime wins. Could you imagine? Could you actually imagine if that happened? You still get the same amount of hockey played as if it was a seven game series, but just in four games for each one. Didn't that was like um, uh, Red Wings Anaheim '97? Remember that one? Of course. When we Kozlov sh- beat Mikhail Stolinkov with the glow puck, we should from the half wall, the glow puck. <laughs> and then the net went on fire after. 
Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Too. We should be so lucky to get that again. Well, that's the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. Excited to see what update's going to come around, but it, each series is probably going to be somehow 5 nothing by the time we talk next, but we'll see uh, where they're at when we talk next. For now, let's get into some NHL news. Toronto. I know we talk about them a lot, but this is genuinely a wild turn of events. Uh, last time we spoke, Kyle Dubas had his uh, kind of strange press conference in which he stipulated that if he was going to go anywhere to GM at all, it would be in Toronto, but he's just not certain that he uh, can because, you know, it took a toll on his family and I'm sure there's stuff going on in the background there. Um, I viewed it as a bit of a weird negotiating thing, but I did think it was a negotiating position. Uh, I thought it was kind of strange to say that uh, he wouldn't go anywhere else, um, but like kind of not threatened, but he was openly implying that he might not come back at all. At this point, very obviously, Toronto wanted him back and were trying to extend him. Uh, they won that first round series, and that it's reported that that's when that decision was made. And then it came out that uh, Toronto decided to move on from Kyle Dubas. So they let his contract run out, and they uh, aren't going to be bringing him back. And to, to very clearly state this, that's not Dubas making that decision to not come back, as he implied might be the case. That's Brendan Shanahan and the Toronto Maple Leafs saying, nope, we are moving on. So piecing together a lot of things that were said by Brendan Shanahan and uh, by uh, various reports, apparently what happened was Kyle Dubas, after that press conference, Shanahan saw it, didn't really love what he saw there, was kind of caught off guard. And then Dubas's representation came back uh, uh, later in the week to say Kyle has confirmed that he wants to return to the Maple Leafs and then also had a counteroffer to the standing extension on the table for Kyle Dubas, which was apparently for like five years. I'm not sure on the numbers. I saw reports of like $4 million-ish in there, but, you know, GM salaries don't matter. doesn't count against the cap. And to to confirm, Dubas uh, apparently confirmed to Shanahan by email that he wants to return, if that matters to you at all. So that happened. The counteroffer came in, and then evidently Shanahan made the decision to say, yeah, we're not going with Kyle. Very obviously, what he said out loud was he didn't like uh, the press conference to some degree, but I think some quiet context back here is that counteroffer is really what decided this. And there's two factors. One, it could be the increased money, but as we know, MLSC is money is pouring out of their pockets. But I think two, he must have asked for a control structure that basically tried to either sidestep Shanahan or seriously reduce Shanahan's control. And that's a pretty bold thing to ask Brendan Shanahan, who's, who controls the entire hockey operations in Toronto, and that's when he decided to move it out. So I don't know what you guys make of it, but what a wild turn of events. This is one of those rare circumstances where I feel like both parties involved were being a petulant child. I don't know how else to phrase it. Dubis, one should never have done that press conference. Shanahan even told him, hey, maybe don't do this press press conference, but Dubas said he wanted to do it, and Shanahan respected his wishes. And then he goes out and gives, yeah, all these weird answers that, like, in Dubas's defense, they weren't necessarily bad answers. You know, yeah, you want to put your family first. You want to make sure your family's comfortable with what you're doing in your future plans. Sure. And those are all conversations you definitely need to have behind the scenes. But one... That's not a conversation you have with your boss, and that's definitely not a conversation you have with the media. Um, but whatever, those are, for the most part, just words. 
Um, and then, you know, he confirmed, okay, yeah, I talked about it with my family. We're, we're good. We want to do this. Okay, here's my counteroffer at the last second without giving you any heads up, which, you know, most mega corporations uh, aren't fans of. The, uh, you know, we're negotiating in good faith this whole time. And then all of a sudden, ta-da, uh, here's my request for more money and more control. I I want to push back on that after. I'm not saying that a counteroffer is a bad thing. I'm saying the timing of it after everything he just did was what probably sewered him on that one. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and then Shanahan going, all right, screw you, bud. You're done. Like just. Quickly, too, I might add, because uh, Dubas came back with that counteroffer Thursday night and he was gone by Friday morning. Like, did not take uh, Brendan a lot of time to think to mull that one over. So, uh, I think the one way, uh, Steve, uh, was listening to his podcast after this news broke and, and he put it in a, in a really well reasoned way Toronto is not a process team anymore with how rash and irrationally. And how quickly everything happened here and how quickly they threw the original plan out the window. This isn't a process team anymore. This is a, we're just going to go by what our gut's telling us. I agree with you that everyone seems to have acted a little bit emotionally, a little bit rash and a little bit, you know, the timing wasn't advantageous for them here. I don't disagree if Brendan Shanahan had a problem with the money or the control structure that Dubas came out with. And after that press conference, like that's the public image of saying, I don't know that I'm a hundred percent committed to coming back next season. And then asking for more in terms of money and more importantly, control over hockey ops. Like those two just, they're not just uh, 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 antithetical. They just don't mesh. You can't have those things. And the GM is the face of the team in a lot of ways. So you can't re- you really can't have that, especially in a market like Toronto. So from a management perspective, I don't blame Shanahan. Who I'll, I'll, I'll say I have some bias towards because he's my favorite, favorite player of all time here. But I don't blame him for not liking that. But you also have to recognize that they let Dubas have a lame duck year in terms of his contract extension. They didn't decide until he, they won that first round that they wanted to extend him. It's like betting on yourself almost, but GM version. Yeah, and Dubas rolled with it. Yeah, Shanahan decided sometime around the trade deadline, apparently, that they wanted to extend him, and then the decision was finalized, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But if you let someone go into their last year in a head coaching or a management position without an extension, that is a lame duck uh, administrative member, and they are going to, you have to expect that they are going to protect their best interests. Do I agree with the way Dubas was negotiating publicly, or even if it wasn't a negotiation and it was genuine statements? No, I, I agree with Shanahan there that he should have kept that more private. But you also can't be shocked. We don't know what went into that offer. Apparently, their relationship had been a little bit tense for a while. The structure was like, Dubis wants to do something. It goes up to Shanahan. Shanahan has to send it up to ownership. It comes back down to Shanahan. It goes back down to Dubis. Like, that's insane. You can't operate a business that way. If, you're, if you own a business, you need to have your people have the agency to make decisions that fall in line with your values, your ethos, your beliefs, or whatever. Otherwise, you don't have the right people hired. So I don't blame Dubas for 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 asking for something different. But I don't know. Maybe there's something in that offer that was just absolutely wild to dr- to drive Shanahan nuts here. Um, it was, you know, reported that he, uh, Shanahan had shot down more than one of Dubas's proposed moves in the past. I saw something like knives in a first for Hagel and Marc Andre Fleury or something like that. 
in the past. I, I don't know necessarily that that's true, uh, but we know that Shanahan had shot down what Dubis wanted to do on more than one occasion. And so you can say that that was probably getting to be a tense situation. So there's some background here. All in all, though, it does seem to be hasty and rash. And I don't know if you, I don't know how you can justify to your fans the 180 from we want to hire this guy for five years to we're moving on from him over the course of like 72 hours. It's uh, for a team that's attempting to win a cup in now a very short amount of time. Um, it's certainly a complicating move. <laughs> um, I think Matthews is on record saying that his relationship with um, with Dubis is like a driving factor for him being in Toronto and loving being in Toronto. So, oops, that's not ideal. Apparently, players are frustrated. Like they've some have either in exit interviews or, or in conversations with various reporters. I know Friedman said a player texted him and said they were not thrilled with what was happening. There's a lot of confusion. Like this is going to have reverberations through the organization. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure the list of candidates to replace Kyle Dubas is uh, all uh, very top-tier um, talent with uh, no questionable deci- uh, picks being brought to the table. They Shanahan said he wanted someone with, an ex- with experience who wanted to make, who wasn't afraid to make uh, tough decisions with some bite. <laughs> what the hell does that even mean? It means Peter Shirelli. Come on down. Mark Bergevin's name was thrown around. Oh my God. Hunter's name was thrown around. Oh my God. This is great for us, though. Oh, no, yeah. it's awesome. And outside of who they hire, like, because we can joke saying, oh, bad GM will be hired. Detroit will get their best players. But they're signaling they are going to do a big reset here. They are signaling that if they can't get Matthews signed before July 1st, he gone. They might have to make sure they, they don't lose that asset for nothing. They're signaling that, you know, Marners and, and Nylander aren't safe. But there's not only Toronto's downfall, which is good for Detroit potentially in the standings in the long term, is in play here, but players are in play here. Like a shakeup in the Atlantic with one of the teams with the most talent is exactly what Atlantic foes like the Red Wings need. Who is the Red Wings player most comparable to Adam Larson? Uh... Benchrot. No, I feel like he's somewhere between Jake Wallman and Ole Mato. We'll start out Ole Mato. Either then. way, which one <laughs> of those are you giving up for Mitch Marner when Shirelli gets there? <laughs> we'll give them both. Just a, su- a sweetener. Oh, why? Well, I, I don't think we'll have to. Don't get carried away, Evan. <laughs> I think you could sell Ole Mata. I think you. <laughs> no, we got we got to kick in a fourth. Well, you got to be fair here, Ryan. Be realistic. I just, you know what. Hold I, on, before I get the tweets, every, everybody knows this is sarcasm, right? No, you, you. It is important that you're stipulating that because there will be tweets. Yeah, I there and like unless Peter Shirley gets hired, then these are very literal statements. They're trying to come in and do this big reset, but they like their hands are tied in a lot of regard. Like, what if Matthews does what Larkin does? It's easier said than done. But like, are you really going to move Matthews? Mm, How are you going to move Tavares's contract if you want to? Their their hands are not tied. There are complications here, but Matthews no trade doesn't kick in until July one. I don't think Marner has one or it hasn't kicked in yet. Nylander doesn't have one. I don't believe. They have very, very valuable pieces that teams will covet. These are not easy moves. These are not simple moves, and they are time-sensitive moves. But if Matthews goes, I'm, I was a Kyle guy. He's gone. I'm not extending before July 1. The new GM can go, okay, that's totally fair, and trade him on June 30th. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. They're not completely handcuffed. I'd say the only unmovable contract on that team right now is Tavares. So they, ha- they have... 
pieces to work with. It's just, yeah, it's what's going to be their Adam Larson for Taylor Hall. On the Dubas side of things, uh, the Pens have er- the Penguins have already received permission to talk to him, and I would not be surprised if they dump the Brinks truck uh, to get him in like a president of hockey ops position. I think they're already pretty deep in their GM search. Imagine getting fired into a promotion. I could also see Ottawa potentially, although it seems that Michael Ann Lauer is the odds-on favorite at this point to become the next owner of the Sens. Uh, he was the uh, minority owner of the Canadians, so he would obviously have to sell that uh, portion, but very easy for him to do. Um, and he's been linked to Steve Steos to to bring him over. So I don't know that uh, he would necessarily bring in Dubas, but potentially uh, in a president of hockey ops position there too. So Dubas is going to have options. And he'll be he, all right. He's going to make a lot of money, so he'll be fine. I don't give a shit what Ann Lauer does. What would Snoop Dogg do? Uh, it's not looking good for that bid. Yeah, I know, but it's funny all this fanfare about the celebrity bids, and then you just get like a, a bona fide, tried and true hockey owner who has already owned part of another team. Oh, it must be the NHL we're talking about. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Not my <sighs> team to sell. Whoever's going to give him a billion dollars, I don't care who I'd sell to. Good for you. Anyhow, uh, all of that with the Leafs has been <laughs> crazy. I cannot. I can't believe how quickly that turned around and it just fired off in the other direction. It just felt like it happened literally out of nowhere. I woke up and that was the first thing I saw. Yeah, insane. Uh, okay, some very quick updates here. We talked about uh, the World Championships, uh, just some stat updates. Kubelik is up to eight goals and four assists. He is the name player in that term- tournament right now and this is the Kubelik that we saw at the start of last season and honestly, I think he's going to get attention because of this. Oh, he might. He might and he's coming off a near 50 point season, so he's always been a really good goal scorer. It's not going to be a surprise, but this is like a little off-season refresher for folks that yeah, Kubelik has a absolute weapon from that spot and uh elsewhere Bergeron has two goals, four assists. Raymond is up to two goals and five assists. Uh Mazer still at a goal and assists. Um Cider is a goal and two assists and Oli Mata five assists. So Detroit Red Wings, you know, Valeno notwithstanding, um, continuing to do well over there. Olimata, you say? That's right. <laughs> hey, Pete, you seeing this? Uh, and a quick update here. Uh, belated congratulations to our good friend and D- Detroit Red Wings lead announcer, Ken Daniels. Uh, uh, just recently was inducted into uh, the Legends Plaza at Detroit Historical Museum uh, alongside uh, obvious legends, Ben Wallace and Lomas Brown. Uh, Amir Makupson and George Blaha, Ken's recognition across the uh, the hockey and uh, sports community in Michigan, especially, uh, continues to grow because it's well, well deserved. So congratulations uh, to Ken Daniels on that. And uh, The Athletic is doing their annual broadcast uh, uh, ratings poll where they uh, measure the you know popularity and success and uh, how well each uh, NHL broadcast does across the league. So uh, we'll link to it. And if you subscribe to The Athletic, uh, go show the uh, Valley Sports Detroit, Ken, Mickey Redmond, uh, that entire crew over there, uh, your support. Pound for pound, one of the best uh, sports broadcasts in all of professional sports and absolutely the best in the NHL. So they've won the honors before. Uh, so let's continue to show them our support. And one last note here, actually, I should mention, uh, Elliot Friedman reported that one of the potential uh, coaches in Calgary's coaching search, uh, he wouldn't be surprised if Alex Tangay's name is on that list. Craig Conroy was obviously named GM over there, and uh, Alex Tangay is seen as very popular uh, as a potential coaching replacement uh, for various spots, and Calgary was 
uh, noted this time around. Tangay's involvement in Detroit's offense is something that will be focused on, and they'll want to get you know a more offensive flow going to their game. Not a surprise, considering they just got rid of Sutter, who <laughs> Huberto came in and had a like half as productive season as he had the year before with Florida. So they're they're really trying to maximize that. Uh, Tangay is not the first you know Detroit assistant in some capacity to be named. Um, Sean Horkoff was uh, a guy who was kind of pitched as a potential executive for another GM or president hockey ops spot in, in various spots around the league. So Red Wings administration names are starting to come up again. So uh, Tange, if you're, if coaches or teams are looking for more of an offensive coach, expect to hear Tange's name more and more. And this was a stepping stone position for him too. Yeah. When he came in, he wants to gain experience to potentially one day be an NHL head coach. When that'll happen, I don't know, but it's starting to, to buzz. Well, it makes sense. Cause let me tell you, when I, think about elite NHL offenses, I think about the Detroit Red Wings. <laughs> there is something to say about he did come in and for flashes in the pan, Detroit's power play looked phenomenal. There were moments. It did get over 82 games. There were moments. Unexplainably cold still at points, but that's been a theme of the Red Wings for, God, seven, eight years now. Yeah. So who's to say what he would do with a different roster on a different team? Um but don't be surprised if that happens at some point in the near to medium term future. Okay, let's jump into overtime here. Uh, overtime on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Again, is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Uh, Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel Podcast. If you want to get benefits like hearing thoughts with Evan in our bonus uh, episodes, uh, our Winged Wheel Podcast exclusive Discord, and uh, you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways uh, you support the show's growth. You support expected by whom and all of our expanded content. You support the Jamie Daniels foundation and partnered events with the Detroit Red Wings, like winged wheel podcast night at the LCA. So patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you can, uh, and are able to support, let's take some questions from some patrons. Uh, the gyms says, Hey boys, just like the rest of us, I really want to see the wings take some big swings this draft and off season to bolster the roster. All the speculation of who we could pull from Toronto or the Jets is exciting. Here's the kick in the balls. Do you think it is more likely that the Wings land Nylander or Kyle Connor, or rather a deal falls with Toronto and Winnipeg swapping players? Both teams looking to make big adjustments with high-end talent options. Well, that is the more likely option. And the more and more uh, time that passes, the less and less likely it sounds like Kyle Connor is getting moved. So, yeah, neither is very likely. Um, the Red Wings won't likely want Nylander because of the one-year term. The Jets don't seem to be moving Connor, but a Winnipeg-Toronto trade does make sense in a lot of ways. Tatarsaw says, what would it take for the Wings to get Keller? Is there any other uh, sleeper, low-key talked about forwards for a trade besides the usual Connor or Debrinket? Nick Schmaltz. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Nick Schmaltz. We'll do this in a future episode too. Yeah, so he's uh, basically... Not every year, but it, he was a near point per game player this season. He's normally going to finish in the 50 to 60 point range. So if you're looking for some, you know, second line scoring, and I think he only makes like six mil a year with three years left on his contract. That's a very, very attractive option. And because of, you know, all the chicken, chicken rumors to the last couple of years and now the Keller rumors, Schmaltz often gets overlooked. That being said, I would much prefer Clayton Keller, but maybe both. Yep. Pick both. Trade for both. Let's get weird. How many first-round picks for both? Four? Ooh, that's a lot of first-round picks. I want to keep one this year. Keep nine and give them the other three. Ah, great. In a heartbeat. Let's do it. They're going to be free agents after the team folds anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Jonah Blatt says, between the draft and potential potential trades uh, slash UFAs, what does your ideal offseason for the Red Wings look like? Clayton Keller and Nick Schmaltz. What? You walk away from the, first of all, walk away from the draft with some kind of high producing potential forward coming out of there. At least one. Uh, a trade, like Brad said, maybe for Keller, maybe for Connor, maybe for Schmaltz, whoever. Uh, utilizing Detroit's wealth of of um, players, or sorry, uh, assets, and then a solution uh, for right D on the second line, on the second pairing for me. Uh, Lars Thorzell says, hey boys, do you really think there's any sense of urgency about becoming so much better next season than the season that just ended? Another season similar to this one is pretty much what I'd expect. I don't get why we are supposed to trade prospects and picks now to get top talent. A top player, while exciting, doesn't really move us that much further along. We still have glaring holes in the lineup. What's the sudden rush? You're misconstruing what we're saying. All of the trade proposals we are, you know, hypothesizing have nothing to do with this upcoming season. I don't give a shit what the Red Wings do this season. If they finish 16th or 24th, it has almost no bearing, on my opinion, on anything they do. They have glaring holes that they need to fill to become Stanley Cup contenders in, you know, three to five years, let's say. The reality is these are likely not to come via free agency or the draft. So you have there's that only leaves one other solution to solve them. I would like to pick an Oliver Moore at number nine, hypothetically, because I think he could be a second line center on a cup team if everything goes well with paired with Dylan Larkin. I also would like to trade for Clayton Keller because in three to four years, I think he could be a contributor on the Red Wings when they are getting over that threshold into being of the upper echelon of the NHL. The reason the urgency is here is eventually they have to do it or they're never going to open that window. It doesn't have to be this summer, but the draft and develop part of this rebuild for the most part is done. Like they are, they are now starting. This could be the last year they're drafting in a position where they can draft a player, an impact player, and they're not just drafting for depth. So you know, if a Ryan Leonard or an Oliver Moore, a Dalibor Dvorsky, whoever they pick this year, doesn't turn into a superstar, that was their last window for that anyway. So now it's all about, here's the pool of picks and prospects we have. How do we turn this into a top six player? You know, to quote Billy Bean, how do we recreate this in the aggregate? Because they don't have anybody or anything to fill those holes. So they have to create it out of what they have. Unfortunately, I agree fully with you, Brad. I will have to wash my mouth out with soap later. But yeah, they're just out of this phase of being in pure rebuild. Not because it's, you know, we've been here for too long and we're bored. Although there is something to be said. The fans can't do this forever. And the very real impatience and frustration was palpable this year. And that's not to be discredited. But because the players are getting too good. You now have Cider, you have Larkin, you have Raymond, and you have, you know, Wallman, you have a bunch of players who are not only already good, but continuing to get better, especially when you talk about the young guys, you're no longer going to be in a position to draft higher really than you are now, barring some insane lottery luck. And as Brad said, yeah, to build a cup contender, you have to iterate, you have to build that depth, you have to build winning play styles, you have to build the culture, and it does not happen overnight. We've seen it time and time and time and time and time again. Does that wash away the fact that the Red Wings don't have a game breaker? No. That is still a very glaring issue that Detroit has to address. But hanging out in like the 14th to 9th worst team in the league 
uh, phase without trying to get better is not a solution because it's not going to come that way. We don't know how it's going to come about, come about. It could be a, a trade. It could be a third round pick. It could be a random UFA signing. It could be anything, but it's just not, it hasn't come through draft lottery luck. And so you have to, you just can't wait by the side of the road. You have to start walking towards the gas station. Really weird uh, uh, metaphor for me, but yeah, in general, you have to start building towards that. And it, Steve's going to have to improv this. Eisenman's going to have to figure out along the way how to solve the scoring and game breaker issue. But yeah, for now, try the greater than the sum of your parts thing. Like, and it's it's the reason why when people bring up, you know, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, Mark Shifley trade proposals, we just wave them on by because the Red Wings are not in a position to trade for anybody who's got one year left on their contract. Unless they can get a, a yeah, there's always a sign in trade, but those are so rare. I almost don't even entertain the idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you, we should trade for Austin Matthews. If he's willing to extend for, you know, a bunch of years, absolutely you should. But as of right now, that's not an option. So, you know, we don't need one year of Austin Matthews. We need four, five, six, seven, eight years of Austin Matthews if we're going to do that. And let me say if a player of like Matthews caliber goes to unrestricted free agency, then the focus is to offer the maximum dollars for as long as you can because, yes, you'll overpay. Yeah, it's going to cause a cap crunch. Yeah, you're going to be in pain for seven years trying to always fit that in, kind of like Toronto has been, but it's worth it because you have a superstar goal scorer. And as Tampa Bay and Vegas have taught us, the cap is fake. Yep. So don't worry about it. Yep. Okay. Thank you all for tuning in. We'd like to thank all of our listeners, new and old. If you want to support the show in other ways that aren't uh, Patreon, you can uh, give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcast, subscribe, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, it helps a lot. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our uh, Patreon supporters, especially our name-level sponsors, Arjun Shanker, Ease Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand, Fund- Grand Foundation, uh, Akefer, wait for it, we are Geelong, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, the Hat One Two Three, Keenan O'Donohue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landiscog, Bros Before Hosas, Carl Brutanen and Aluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Cooking with Kosa, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Kassem, I Missed Cronwall, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan the Ryan Hannah Hannah, Scott Martin, That's What I Appreciate's About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan, A.A. Ron, Adam Gowitza, Adam Rose, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, C.J. Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Evans Lost Rangefinder, <laughs> Evans Lost Rangefinder, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Ophelia, Steven, Tatarsos, The Hodag, The Original Button of Lemon, and The St. Louis Blueth. Thank you all so very much, and we will talk to you midweek. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.